Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, Episode 6, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. My guest on today's episode is Professor Lance Fortnow from Northwestern University and founder of the Computational Complexity blog. We discuss P versus NP, economics and computational complexity, as well as how the internet is helping to build better scientific communities. Oh, and Twitter gets a shout out too. Here we go. Hello, welcome to Strongly Connected Components. On today's episode, I have Professor Lance Fortnow. Uh, he's a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at Northwestern University and also the author of the Computational Complexity blog. Hello, Professor. Uh, hi, glad to be here. I'm glad to have you and uh, glad that you're willing to take all this time out of your days to uh, do the interview. Oh, no problem. Now, uh, you are, as I said, Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, and specifically uh, you do work with theoretical computer science and even more specifically in that, if we can get more specific, in computational complexity. Now, a lot of people will, you know, view computers and computation as complex already, but I know that computational complexity itself means something different. I was wondering if you could give a bit of an explanation as to what computational complexity the academic discipline is. Oh, sure. I think the best way to think about it is to look at the kinds of questions we ask. So, um, you know, like when I start a class, my first question is always, what is a computer? What can it do? What can't it do? What if we have um, a limited amount of time or memory? What if it flips coins? What if it uses quantum entanglement? What if um, it plays games? So lots of kinds of different sort of questions. And what we do is we try to formulate them very mathematically and then try to compare different models of computation in a very uh, formal sense. Now, the most well-known of the problems in computational complexity, at least amongst the rest of the world, is uh, P versus NP, of course. Now, I also think that it's probably the least understood problem that I've uh, ever run across. Why do you think that that misunderstanding takes place? In what sense do you think it's misunderstood? Uh, A lot of people People will... I just feel that a lot of people talk about OP versus NP, but don't really have a sense as of what either P or NP stands for. Yeah, it's not the best of all names, especially for a problem that's you know sort of gone beyond you know our small field. Uh, so P versus NP. Um, best way to describe it is sort of like sewer problems. So one of the classic problems is the uh, traveling salesperson problem, where I want to visit, say, a uh, hundred different cities, and, and I want to know if I use some order of cities I can visit them, taking you know less than a million miles. Now we know how to solve this. We can just look at all the possible ways to travel to all the cities, 
But the question is, is there some very efficient way? Is there some very quick way we can determine whether or not there's a way to travel to all these cities in less than a million miles? And so this problem is, is interesting in the sense that if I gave you a solution, it'd be easy to check it. Um, it'd be easy to tell that, you know, if I gave you a list of cities, you could tell that the whole trip takes less than a million miles. Um, uh, but, it, but if I don't tell you the solution, it could be very difficult to find one. And um, what NT, the class NT, is trying to capture, captures the class of all these problems for where we can verify the solution quickly. And P represents the problems where we can find the solution quickly. And so the big P versus NP question is saying, you know, if we can verify solutions quickly, can we also find them quickly as well? Uh, recently you had uh, written a paper, I believe it's for the ACM, on the, the where P versus NP, the question stands right now. And you were uh, talking a lot about uh, the different approaches and things that people are taking right now. Do you see any of the current approaches possibly getting us to an answer on the question? Uh, not in the near future that I can see. Um, there's some interesting work being done by uh, one of my former colleagues at the University of Chicago uh, when I was there. Um, Tom Momoli, who has a nice approach using algebraic geometry, but even even that approach seems to be uh, decades, if not centuries, away from working. So um, right now the problem, it's, it's sort of amazing. It's the lots of approaches, and they've all seemed to stall for the most part. So it's, it just seems to be just one of these classically difficult problems. I mean, the real issue is, if you want to prove canonical entity, you have to show that no algorithm, no matter how clever, could possibly solve a problem like traveling salesmen, and that becomes, uh, it's very hard to show that something can't be done. I believe it was on the blog at some point, you actually said that you almost hope that it's not solved soon. Uh, wondering uh, specific reasons as to uh, why you would almost hope that one of the most important problems in your discipline uh, is not solved in the near future. Yeah, I, I can't, Never, I use the word almost here. <laughs> no, 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 I, I know. The, uh, that was actually in the article and the, that oh, was okay. in the communications of the ACM. No, actually what I meant in some sense is it adds a lot of mystery to our field and it brings a lot of attention to our field. And, and it, it's sort of like this incredible goal that we're going after. Um, in some sense, when you achieve a goal, you kind of say, okay, I've done that, what next? I mean, it'd be great to see it solved. And certainly, I, you know, certainly I really do want to see it settled before I die. Today. But, you know, having this kind of open problem that drives our discipline, I think has been very, um, it, it kind of keeps, it kind of guides us in the research we do, and as well as, you know, sort of bring a lot of attention to, um, to our field. I think that's been a good thing. So you, you feel in general that having really important and well-known open problems can uh, help the discipline of math or one of the sub-disciplines? Oh, very much so. I think people are, I mean, people, for example, you know, when I was a child, you know, were excited by Fermat's last theorem. The fact that this very simple to say result was very hard to prove. 
But now that it's actually been proven, I, I don't think you see the children of today, you know, getting that excited over over that kind of, of result anymore. So, uh, sort of by having these sort of great questions, it it sort of inspires people because people say, "Wow, there's these great questions. I want to try to settle or solve." Today. And even if they don't solve them, it still at least you know brings them into science. I mean, in general science, not just math. And try so people can try to. It actually brings people into the field and gets people excited and and you know helps us you know really try to understand the world better. Oh, you've you speaking of getting into science. You've spoken or written before as uh, the one of the reasons that you got into mathematics is that you had an interest in the process as well as a need to know things. I was wondering if you could expound on that as to why that helped drive you into the field. Okay, I think I can, let me tell the story of sort of the uh, epiphany I had when I was in college. Oh. I, I, went to, um, I went to college at Cornell to be an engineer originally. You know, I'd read something when I was a kid about engineering being, uh, using science to help society. It sounded very noble. So anyway, I was sitting in engineering math class, and the professor puts up uh, an equation on the board. I raise my hand and I say, so why is that true? And he, he says back to me, he says, we don't do that in engineering math. And I realized I just couldn't live without knowing why these things were true. So at that point, I kind of um, gave up engineering, switched over, became a math major. And then later on, uh, you know, I added some computer science. And that's sort of what, you know, turned, uh, sent me in the direction I go. I think the issue about process is really just sort of what's got me interested in computation. Is that I, I kind of, I, I view computation in some sense, the world at large, as just, it's a, you know, it's a big process. You have different things, different people interacting in different ways. Somehow this, it all sort of uh, goes together and makes things work. And that's always fascinated me. And, um, you know, computation is sort of, especially computational complexity, is, is something that at the sort of raw mathematical level that interests me. Uh, you, you spoke in that story of uh, the engineering math teachers stating that they didn't do that, meaning, of course, the actual proving of why they're using that equation. Now, that really draws into one of the problems or uh, at least I feel that it's a problem in the math fields today, and that's that we tend to be getting incredibly narrow uh, as far as what we know, and that's it's all right in some ways because we can we can really get to know a subject, but sometimes I kind of miss the days of uh, the ability to be a polymath. I was wondering what you feel about the narrowness, the, the laser uh, kind of focus that we have to have when we're starting to study mathematics these days. Uh, I think it's just, you know, victim of our own success in some sense that we've really pushed the envelope in mathematics in many different directions. And it's uh, just, you know, by an issue of time more than anything else, it's very hard to sort of understand everything. And especially if you want to do research in an area, you really have to, you know, you have to get to the edge of the envelope in order to start doing research. And that means you need to really sort of focus in a limited direction. And so if you, in most cases, I mean, there are a few exceptions, but in most cases, 
um, you really need to have that very specialized focus in order to sort of push new, uh, push through a research agenda. Yeah, no, it's hard because sometimes when you're so narrow, you miss the big picture, and that's that's a bad thing. And all sometimes you see people just getting lost there, just proven results and forgetting why they were in that little region of the envelope to begin with. But for the most part, I think it's been it's been good. We get, uh, I mean, it, we were able to get lots of different. I mean, while we're not experts in everything, we have a lots of people who are experts in something. And the nice thing today is with the way information spreads, it's actually very easy to communicate. You know, all these people doing all these little things communicate together. And I think that actually does sort of help give us a broader view of everything, even though individually we might just be very specific. Oh, well, in a, in a little bit, I really want to get back to... Uh uh, how information is now moving a lot faster in the way that's allowed us to build new communities. I want to uh, pick on something a little bit uh, earlier in your answer there, and that's that one of the big issues has been time. Well, uh, computational complexity and theoretical computer science uh, obviously has not been around as long as a lot of areas in mathematics. I mean, it, Euclid wasn't studying theoretical computer science as far as I know. Um, what did you think? Okay. <laughs> I mean, Euclidean algorithm. Well, that. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. no, that's okay. that's very true. I was just, I was, I was making a bad joke. That's all. Well, okay, that's all right. <laughs> I understand the point. I mean, our field basically, you know, got its, uh, it got going in the fifties, and so we're pretty young. And I will admit, you know, when I started going to conferences when I was a student in the mid eighties, I could go to a general theoretical computer science conference and understand most papers, and that's not so true today. It's very hard for me to keep up with even all the areas of theoretical computer science or even all the areas of computational complexity. It starts to get a little difficult. I was, uh, Just uh, best you can. Yeah, I was uh, specifically going to ask uh, what kind of newer areas you're personally branching out to at this point. Personally, uh, in recent years, what I've been interested in is the connection between um, computational complexity and economics. Mostly, um, the, the, the economists, I'm talking to mostly theoretical economists, and the models they use uh, generally assume that the players can you know, instantly deduce everything they know from the information they have. And they, they, they don't take computation into account, or if they do, they do it in very simple ways. And so all I'm, I'm trying to do is sort of bring the tools of computational complexity and sort of the models that we have into these economic models and seeing what sorts of results uh, might change in, in those models. Uh, have you found uh, any, any issues, not, not necessarily issues, have you had any problems crossing over uh, the disciplines? Have there any, been any roadblocks that you found uh, when you've tried to start working in economics in comparison with just in theoretical computer science? Um, I mean, there's a huge, uh, you get know, a lots of problems. One is just various cultural things. I mean, the economics culture is a bit different than the, uh, the computer science culture in, in the way we, the way we communicate results or the way, or what we even consider to be approved, that sort of, but beyond that, uh, also there's, there's, a, there's, some, there's some economists who feel that 
computer science you know, could play an important role, but I think the majority of economists haven't really seen it yet. So it's sort of hard to break in, in some sense. And also there's just a big sort of learning curve. I mean, you know, I could read a, some simple stuff about game theory, say, but I'm, I'll never be that kind of expert really understanding the field, you know, that I, like I do in computation, so I really, it's, so there's also this big learning curve that has to happen. Um, I think I'm very lucky. I mean, part of what, you know, I moved to Northwestern about two years ago, and what, what drew me here was the economists they have here that seem very willing to talk to computer scientists. And that's what's been ex- exciting about uh, this place I researched last couple of years. Well, since uh, you're working with economists, I have to do my journalistic due diligence here and uh, ask if you are close to solving our current economic crisis right now. No. Okay. Well, fair enough. I, I wasn't expecting any difference, but, you know, had to ask. But, you know, one question is, is you know, what role does computation play in, in what happened in the crisis? Was, was there an issue that people couldn't realize the outcome of all these various events that were going on. So, so it's, it's possible, and it's not clear yet, but I think you know, it's very possible that one of the causes that crisis we're in is just the inability to uh, really understand the consequences of our actions, you know, the, the computational aspects you know, weren't, can't, weren't accounted for. Okay, well, I... But I, uh, like I said, I don't see myself solving it in any way. <laughs> well, who knows? You you mentioned a couple of questions ago, I can't honestly remember exactly when, about conferences. And you have gone and put down on paper very specifically in an article for Communications of the ACM called Time for Computer Science to Grow Up, that the current conference setup for computer science is hurting the discipline. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit what you... Uh, with the problems that you see with the conference setup versus, say, the journal setup for computer science? Okay. Right. You've got to realize that computer science as an academic field works quite differently that way than pretty much every other academic field in that we have conferences that are highly selective and uh, you get more, in general, in general you get much more prestige for having a paper in a high-level conference than you would having a paper in a particular journal. And so uh, the way conferences work, though, is you submit papers. There's some committee that um, gets a huge number of submissions except some small fraction of them. You know, the fraction that depends on the conference, maybe like around 20% typically. Um, and then those, those are the papers that they get presented at the conference. The, the problem that's been happening is with sort of the growth of the field, and the specialization that we're having is that we're beginning to see a big growth in the number of conferences we're having. And it's become harder to get your papers accepted in the conferences because there's you know, more people working in the area, especially the good conferences. So um, what I'm worried about mostly is community, is that we're not getting... Uh, conferences are losing their role as sort of bringing our community together and just, and their main role is, seems to be a uh, place to rank papers. And so often you're seeing people 
only being able to go to conferences where they have papers in, you know, for because of time or money issues. And so I worry that uh, we just that we don't have this sense of community that I've seen in some other fields, like say economics or physics, um, where they have, or even math, where they uh, where they can often have large meetings. You know, where the the actual being in the conference isn't such a big issue. I mean, you know, presenting the conference, pretty much anybody can do. And then using a different mechanism, you know, a journal mechanism, rank the papers. You uh, spoke there about community, and it seems to be something that uh, is coming up again since we were, uh, it was mentioned before when you we were talking about the way information flows now. And that, of course, is going to lead me into questions about the computational complexity blog that you have. Now, you uh, founded that quite early as far as blogs go, correct? Uh, I think I was one of the first blogs in the field, not the first. You know, I read this article in Newsweek on, on weblogs back in 2002, and I thought I would just try as an experiment writing a weblog, and then surprisingly, it got pretty popular. And so I've, I took a, a short year off at one point, but otherwise I've been mostly doing it since uh, over seven years now. Uh, in a write-up of the history about it, you said that uh, you started out uh, with rather technical subject matter, correct? Yeah, originally I thought I would use it to you know, focus on the field, you know, new results, and sort of try to get background, you know, focus on the very, you know, on the actual theorems and results and models of our field, theoretical computer science. Um, but yeah, but over time, one thing is the technical stuff takes a lot of, a lot of my time to write a good technical post. Uh, the other issue is that I found that my weblog was starting to play the role of this community, um, sort of bringing the community together. And so I started to talk about things that were much more sort of related to the academic community of theoretical computer science than um, some, not some, a little bit less. Not that I, I still do some, but not as much on the, uh, on the specific technical results. Now, what sort of effect do you think that the uh, internet has had on uh, the community for your discipline? Oh, it's been incredible. I mean, I mean, just the advent of email. I mean, it's, it's you have to go back to the beginning, uh, where people used to, uh, you know, send real letters. I mean, not even that long ago in the, in the early seventies. You know, before people you couldn't communicate at all on the internet. So just the movement from letters to email and then people sharing papers by email, which meant papers could travel quickly instead of slowly through the mail. And eventually, uh, you know, through, uh, then there, there, people created these archive, paper archive sites of various flavors. And then so now all of a sudden people could post a paper and everyone could see it, be aware of it and see it right away. And then, um, you know, one thing as like I said, the field the field's gotten much bigger. It's been harder to sort of follow what's going on everywhere. But we've seen, you know, now, I mean, there must be dozens now, dozens of blogs in theoretical computer science, and you can follow these blogs, and people will tell you what they think their favorite results are. So that kind of also now keeps you on top of what's going on research-wise. So I think just the communication aspect, more than anything else, the ability to 
to describe your results and get them out there to a large audience quickly. Uh, that's, that's, I think more than anything else, that's what the Internet's done. And also it's given us a, a place to meet. I mean, not, not as pretty as I'd like, but it does, it's, you know, between the blogs and, and, and related things, it does, we do have a place where we can have discussion of issues in our field. And that, that's also been very useful. I also I want to question if you feel that the uh, internet will also lead to a new way of getting proofs to things such as the way that uh, Gowers is going about with his polymath projects. Right. Uh, do I think... Um, yeah, just, just do you I think... I think there are some, some kinds of, of, of research works well in that sense, you know, where you can... Uh, where you know you have, you have uh, like you're trying to prove some result, there's lots of little pieces um, that all have to be done and put together. Um, I think the polymath project would, is very good for something like that. So uh, you don't necessarily feel that it's going to lead to a proof of P versus NP, say? No, I, I doubt that because to me that's going to require you know, sort of a more of a, a piece by piece growth. It's not going to be so much as, you know, I can take the P versus, it's something we, we study in, in theoretical computer science called parallelization. When can we take a problem we want to solve and chop it into little pieces? And then, you know, solving all these little pieces, it's easy to put them back together and then solve them. I just have uh, one more question for you right now, actually. Okay, sure. Um, now, this, this is a question that's it's very close to my heart as I spend way, way too much time on this service. But you do have a Twitter account, and I was wondering what that has a extra things Twitter has allowed you to do. Oh, Twitter. Um, you know, Twitter I, I've been viewing mostly as an extension to my weblog. So um, occasionally I would get these little things I'd want to say or little links I'd want to point to. And uh, I didn't want to spend an entire post weblog post on it. You know, Doug, we've been pretty good. And right now I, I co-write the blog with uh, Bill Gassarch, a professor at the uh, University of Maryland. And we're pretty good about getting out about one post every uh, working day. Um, but I don't want to do a, a post on a little thing. So I, I found that Twitter lets me say all these little things without having to, um, you know, spend a uh, uh, what I used to do is collect them up and then do a post with 20 things in them, and I think this makes much more sense. You know, you get sort of quick information out quickly. It's also removed the time pressure. So if something happens, I don't need to write a quick post about, you know, some conference announcement or someone passing away when that happens. I can sort of, like, do something on Twitter and then, um, and then you know, spend some time to write the post correctly later on. So it's sort of... It takes away from this sort of immediacy that um, the, the blog sort of needed to have. And now uh, I, can, I can use Twitter for that and then focus the blog on more um, sort of uh, larger issues. Well, I do hope everybody that listens to this uh, who doesn't already read your great blog starts reading it now and also follows your Twitter feed. And thank you so much for all the time that you've uh, taken out for Strongly Connected Components. Oh, well, thanks very much. This was nice. Well, that is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. 
I just wanted to let you know that if you want to leave any feedback or you just want to say hi, you can email me at my personal email address, samuel at acmescience.com. You can also find out more information about Professor Fortnow as well as links to his blog, his webpage, and of course, most importantly, his Twitter account at our homepage, acmescience.com where you can also find interesting posts about scientific and mathematical articles that I find on the internet and perhaps find out about other podcasts that we also happen to do. Now, as far as credit for the music in this episode, the theme music is, as always, the Pi Song by Hard and Firm. And this music that I am currently talking over, the outro music, is by the band SP12. If you want to find more of their music, please visit them at opsounds.org. Strongly Connected Components is, as always, and as it always will be, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share-Alike license. So please feel free to use any of this audio in any way that you like, as long as you attribute credit for the original audio to us and you let other people remix as they wish. So, thank you very much for listening, and I hope that you have a fantastic week until we can bring you yet another Strongly Connected Components.